If you would turn in your Bibles, we're going to be over briefly in the book of Genesis. As you're turning there, there are some, I didn't know that our children were going to be in here today, but they may enjoy this. There were some answers that were provided by the sixth grade class during a history test. These are the answers. Ancient Egypt was inhabited by mummies, and they all wrote in, hydro, in a hydraulics. <laughs> they lived in the Sarah Desert. The climate of the Sarah is such that all the inhabitants have to live elsewhere. It's another one. Moses led the Hebrew slaves to the Red Sea, where they made unleavened bread, which is bread made without any ingredients. Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. He died before he ever reached Canada. <laughs> Solomon had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. The Greeks were a highly sculptured people, and without them, we wouldn't have history. The Greeks also had myths. A myth is a female moth. Socrates was a famous Greek teacher who went around giving people advice. They killed him. Socrates died from an overdose of wedlock. <laughs> After his death, his career suffered a dramatic decline. It was an age of great inventions and discoveries. Gutenberg invented removable type and the Bible. Another important invention was the circulation of blood. Sir Walter Riley is a historic figure because he invented cigarettes and started smoking. Sir Francis Drake circumcised the world with a hundred-foot clipper. Writing at the same time as Shakespeare was Miguel Cervantes. He wrote Don Quixote. The next great author was John Milton. Milton wrote Paradise Lost. Then his wife died and he wrote Paradise Regained. Delegates from the original 13 states formed the Contented Congress. Thomas Jefferson, a virgin, and Benjamin Franklin were two signers of the Declaration of Independence. Franklin discovered electricity by rubbing two cats backward and declared, A horse divided against itself cannot stand. Franklin died in 1790 and is still dead. Abraham Lincoln became America's greatest precedent. Lincoln's mother died in infancy, and he was born in a log cabin, which he built with his own hands. Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves by signing the Emasculation Proclamation. On the night of April 14, 1865, Lincoln went to the theater and got shot in his seat by one of the actors in a moving picture show. They believe the assassinator was John Wilkes Booth, a supposedly insane actor. This ruined Booth's career. Johann Bach wrote a great many musical compositions and had a large number of children. In between, he practiced on an old spinster, which he kept up in his attic. Bach died from, seven, from 1750 to the present. Bach was the most famous composer in the world, and so was Handel. Handel was half German, half Italian, and half English. He was very large. 
Beethoven wrote music even though he was deaf. He was so deaf, he wrote loud music. He took long walks in the forest even when everyone was calling for him. Beethoven expired in 1827 and later died from this. Well, that's the sixth grade. Isn't it interesting how if you just get a few things wrong, the whole thing is wrong. And that's kind of what we're looking at today. When the enemy wants to come in and get rid of something out of your life, he does not have to get all the details wrong. He doesn't have to give you complete untruth. He just has to mix in a little bit of what is false. And what you're left with, we laugh at. We went over some types of correction last week. We saw the four different types. The first one was internal or self-correction. This is when you correct yourself. This is when you judge yourself. This is when you learn something from the Word of God. And you say, oh, I need to fix that. And we, we take that direction. I told you here at church, we do that often. If we see us getting off in a direction, God shows me we're getting off in a direction, we'll come and we'll teach on that, teach you what God says, and we'll let some self-correction take place. But if self-correction doesn't happen, then we have to go to the next level. Next level is external. That's when someone comes and says, hey, What's going on here? Uh, remember in the New Testament, uh, there were a number of teachers going around and some of them just had some things that weren't quite right and they pulled them aside and they said, hey, this is what you need to be teaching. And then they went off and they were able to do uh, a lot better. So there's external correction. This is, this is private. If you're going to correct someone, you keep it private. You don't go and tell anybody that you corrected them. Don't, don't ever do that. If I ever have to correct somebody, I don't go around telling them, well, I corrected them. That's ridiculous. That's stupid. I should never do that. If I do, I'm wrong. If you do it, you're wrong in that correction. Don't ever do it. Correction is private. You take care of it between you and the person you were supposed to correct and let it go. If they don't respond, the next level is rebuke. This is a little more public. There's different levels of how public this will get, but this is more, more public. We saw some where People were rebuked in front of a few, some were rebuked in front of a church, and some God sent a prophet to rebuke in front of all. If you don't respond to the rebuke, you get to the fourth level, and this is subtraction. This is when you lose stuff. If you have a job, and you did not self-correct, and you did not take the correction, and you got rebuked, what's the next thing? You lose the job. You're, you're gone. That's subtraction. God does not like to subtract, but he will, but he does not like to do it. How you respond will show who you are truly submitted to. We showed all this in that big uh, diagram we gave you with the factory, that you have the inputs, and then you have what goes on on the inside. You have the meditation that you do with the things that you think on, and out of that come beliefs. And then you begin to produce. What you produce are the things that you do, the things that you give, and the things that you say. If our beliefs are off, what we say is off, what we do is off, and what we give is off. We've got to make sure that the inputs that come in are inputs that are beneficial and keep us going in the right direction. No one gets off in a short period of time. It takes a little while, but you can get off. We have to understand that we, I can get off. I don't have to, but I can. doesn't mean that I'm no good. 
It just means I need to make sure that I keep myself checked. So we want to go back. We go back to this story a lot because this shows us the enemy's tactics. So we're going to go back here and just take a look at this for refreshing us on the tactics, tactics the enemy does. In Genesis chapter 3, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. Well, we've got to take a look at, first off, what did these folks have before they were kicked out of the garden? They, had a, they, they walked with God. Can you imagine having that? That God would come down, and you guys would walk. Talk about stuff. And you just walk. Maybe, you know, one day they're walking. He's explaining to him the sun. He's explaining to him what happens during the sunset. Why the colors come out the way they are. Maybe he's explaining to him how the oceans rise and fall. Maybe he's explaining to him what a wave is. What creates a wave. Maybe he's explaining to him how stars were born. How the sun was made. What causes gravity. Who knows? Can you imagine, imagine every day having Jesus there and you just walk along and you can ask him anything about all creation and understand it? He could understand whatever Jesus was telling him. That's something that you had. Would that be special? Whew, that'd be good, wouldn't it? A perfect relationship. They were, he was married and they had a perfect relationship. Didn't have strife, didn't have trouble, they were at peace. I mean, if the animals are at peace, folks, they were at peace. Perfect relationship. They had the garden. The garden of Eden was theirs. With all its trees and the tree of life, it was all theirs. All the animals got along. Peace all through the garden. This is what they had. So what's the enemy do? Now, it's not that the enemy is going to be able to take this for himself, but the enemy does not want him to, them to have it. That's the purpose that people steal things. They steal things from you because they either want what you have or don't want you to have what you got. Whatever it is, they want to get it away from you. So they're out there to steal. So he's out there to steal it. So what's the first thing he does in this process is he distorts. That's the first thing. He's going to distort. Has God said? Look what, he said. Look what he does with this thing. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? He knows perfectly well what God said. He's not asking this because he's curious about what God said. He knows what God said. When the enemy comes in and corrupts scriptures to you, he's not wondering about what the word said, what God promised. He knows. But he'll say things like this. Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? I mean, look at all these trees around here. You can't eat from any of them. 
And she jumps right in there. To, to, I've heard people who've done this. They've gone and we told you about the news media. You know, you all know about the news media. But I heard somebody who went into one of their interviews. And they said they have a pre-interview process. Do you all know about this? If you go in, if you are somebody that they want to interview, they have a pre-interview process. They bring you in for the pre-interview. And what they do is they don't go over all the stuff they're going to go over in the interview. The pre-interview process is to figure out where your buttons are. And so they go through this process, and then afterwards, uh, you will go in for the, the actual interview. And you'll find out it's nothing like the pre-interview. You're not even going over the topics that they talked about in the pre-interview. They're hitting you on other stuff, trying to get you upset, trying to get you to look bad. The interview process is not about bringing out the truth. It is bringing, it's about making someone look bad or someone else look good. That's all it's about. You very seldom will get the truth from those things. I've heard this from a number of people who have never gone through it. I've heard from people who have gone through it. And a lot of them just say, we don't do them anymore. There's no sense. They're not out after the truth of what's going on. They're out to promote a certain thing. So there's no sense in, in going out there and doing it. The devil is not coming here to throw this thing out here to see where are you in the relation to all this. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Here's his open road. She doesn't know exactly what God said. So we can, we can twist it a little bit, because God never said anything about touching it. Apparently you can touch the tree, you just can't eat from it. But people have assumed that Adam just said to, to her, This is what God said, don't touch it. In other words, stay away from it. Get away from the tree. Don't touch it. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Calling into question what God has said. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, they ponder this for a little while. See, this is the inputs. See where the input's coming? She thinks about this for a little while. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, where'd she get that thought from? Desirable to make one wise? Where'd that come from? It didn't come from God. It didn't come from Adam. It came from this source. God knows in the day you eat of it, you're going to know both good and evil. She interprets that as being wise. Because according to the Word of God, He doesn't say anything about it. For God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. As you say, wise. But see, she meditates on that. And she begins to think, I'll be wiser than I am. I'll be as wise as God. So she saw the tree was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together. Made themselves coverings. And we know the rest of the story. Now here's what happens. The enemy comes in and he first off distorts what you know. He has to distort it. Somehow we've got to get you distorted. He's going to look for an open road, look for a place, and send someone into your life who can distort the Word of God. That's the goal. That distortion coming in and causing that distortion, its purpose here is to create a distrust. 
He wants to create a distrust. Because right now, Adam and Eve walked with Jesus every day, had conversations, but now all of a sudden, he's keeping something from us. Why would he keep something from us? There's a distrust that's there. And so you begin to think, why is, why is this going on? Then they become distracted. Because distracted with, well, it looks like good fruit. The tree looks desirable. It's going to make us wise. They become distracted and begin to think about these other things. They're thinking about things they don't have as if they are better than the things that they do. That's what the devil wants to try and get you to do. Why do married people fall into affairs? Because things can come in, become distorted. There's distrust. And then we get distracted. Well, this relationship over here doesn't have all these things. We become distracted. Once we hit that stage, then we hit the fourth one. This is distance. Adam and Eve go after this. They put clothing on the, the leaves and they hid from the Lord. Why? Because once this kind of stuff sets in, you begin to put distance between you and those people. Those people that God had put in your life to help you out. Here's the final one. You have distort, distrust, distract, distance. Last one, displace. Because after it's all said and done, what happens to Adam and Eve? They got moved out of the garden. They are displaced. Put this in your outline for you. Many times when something is lost, it doesn't come back the same. When you let something go, it may come back to you. But it probably doesn't come back the same way. I'll give you a couple of examples of this. Here's, here's one. Solomon built the Lord a wonderful house. And Israel had this beautiful house. When Israel fell because of their idolatry and the temple was destroyed, it was rebuilt, right? Was it rebuilt in all its glory that it had before? No. No, it was nowhere near as good as it was before. Not even close to what it was before. You may get that thing back, but it's not going to be the same. Don't let the devil steal those things from you. Adam and Eve got a garden. Was it the same as the garden they had? They grew things, but it wasn't the same as what they had. They'll get some things back, but it's not going to be as good as what it was before. Don't turn it loose. Trust God. We've got to identify those good sources from the bad sources so that I don't receive from the bad sources, I receive from the good sources. That's the direction we got to go. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, we're going to take a look at a familiar character so we don't have to get into all the details of this. We can just look at the overview. In verse 11, 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 11, As they went up the hill, this is Saul, to the city, they met some young women going out to draw water, and they said to them, Is the seer here? They're looking for the seer to tell them where the donkeys are, where the animals are. And they answered them and said, Yes, there he is just ahead of you. Hurry now, for today he's, he came to the city. Because there is a sacrifice to the people today on the high place. As soon as you come into the city, you will surely find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Now therefore go up, for about this time you will find him. So they went up to the city. They were coming into the city. There was Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before, Saul 
came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. If you go to the chapter before, you'll see that. And Samuel saw, 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 that's fun. The Lord said to him, There he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me, where is the seer's house? And Samuel answered and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today, and tomorrow I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. But as for your donkeys, they were lost three days ago. Do not be anxious about them, for they have been found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and on all your father's house? And, the, and Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite? Are the smallest of the tribes of Israel in my family, the least of all the families of the tribes of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me like this? So, we may not understand it the way that Saul understand it, but Saul understood he's talking about some important things. Who am I that you're going to be talking this way? Down in verse 27, As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servants to go on ahead of us. And he went on, But you stand here a while that I may announce to you the word of the Lord. In chapter 10, verse 1, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you? And he went through this process. You can read the rest of the chapter if you want to. He anointed him. And then he told him some things that would happen and how the Spirit of God was going to come upon him and he would prophesy. And all those things happened to him in the rest of the chapter. And we come up into chapter 11. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us and we will serve you. And Nahash, the Ammonite, answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. Now here's a great answer. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. Isn't that great? <laughs> Hold on a minute. We're going to find out if there's someone out here we can find who can kill you. If we can't find anybody who can kill you, then we'll come out and you can um, you know, put out our eyes and so forth. That's fun. So the messengers came to... Can you imagine waiting for that? Okay, we'll wait. Yeah. So the messengers came to Gabeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now they're all crying because this news has come. How often do we as Christians get bad news and cry and weep? Bad news in the Word of God can go in two different directions. One, it elevates the people who heard it, or it demotes the people who heard it. Very seldom do they stay on the same level. Bad news comes in, and people have been elevated. They have gone up. Saul sees this as an opportunity to be elevated. Because right now the people are, they understand he's been anointed for a king, but they're kind of eh, a little wishy-washy on this. What do you, ah, who, who are you? Why should we follow after you? And so this war has come on. And so Saul says, the Lord has anointed me. I'm going to go out there and we're going to do this. Come on, people, let's go. We're going to go out. We're going to deliver these folks. And we're going to teach these people not to mess with us. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. Saul said, what troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard the news, and his anger was greatly aroused. It is okay to get mad. <laughs> it is okay to get mad. 
when bad news comes and the anointing of God hits you and you get mad, you are fired up to do something about it. That's okay to do that. Now, many people are out there and they say, I don't have anything. I don't have anything. I got nothing. You could be uh, like Adam and Eve in the garden. What do we have? Because what you have, you have become so used to it that it's like you have nothing. And we just kind of despise it. You know, uh, I got nothing. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares about me. I'm going to go out and eat some worms. How's that? Uh, I love that hee-haw song. It just sums it all up. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. <laughs> Gloom, despair, and agony on me. <laughs> and then they all kick off into a verse, and they all just kind of write their own verses. Yeah. How many have never seen that? Never, never, see, never seen it? Never seen it? Go home and YouTube hee-haw and just uh, look this one up. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. And take a look at some of the verses. I mean, there's, you think country music is sad. Oh, man, these guys have come up with all, cor- all kinds of stories. It's something else. And then they go off and they sing that chorus and they just have a fun time with it. But that's where a lot of people are at. They think, you know, my life is terrible, my life is awful, and they don't realize the good things that God has provided in their life because we look at what we don't have. That's what happened with Adam and Eve. They sat there in the garden. They had time to walk with God, peace with all the animals, all the food all around them. What you got to do? And they decided it can be better. We can do better than this. Mm. Don't do it. Many people say they have nothing. That means you have been made unaware of what God has done. You didn't come that way. You have been made unaware of what God has done. You were aware of it. But at the time, when you're saying these kind of things, you are unaware of what God has done. If you don't know you have something valuable, you won't know how to guard it. Now, there's a real easy way you can figure this, come up with this one. If you ever go out to the restaurant with your wife or a girlfriend or, or some of that, the, the wives and the girlfriends carry something that we men do not. It's called a purse. If any of you guys are carrying one, see me after the service. All right, we'll have a little, <laughs> we'll talk about that. I don't know. Some guys want to carry one. If you want to carry one, that's fine. That's, I do not carry a purse. We have had lessons. We have taught the men here how to carry your wife's purse. We have had these lessons. Y'all remember those lessons? We've given you those lessons, how to do it. Because you do not carry that purse like it's yours. Somebody lay hands on that man back there. <laughs> you do not carry that purse like it's yours. You carry it like it has cooties. And they might get off on you. <laughs> but anyway, you're sitting at a restaurant. You're sitting in a spot. And your, your wife has to, to go. And she, what, what will she say to you? Watch my purse. Right? That's telling you that purse has something valuable in it. And your only job right now is to watch the purse. Watch the purse. Don't get distracted by the game that's up on the TV in the restaurant. <laughs> got to watch the purse. You got to do something because that purse has something valuable in it. If the wife, girlfriend came in and there was nothing valuable in the purse, she wouldn't say, watch the purse. But because there's something valuable in it, she says, watch the purse. She's alerting you there's something valuable in there. You need to 
Watch it. If that purse disappears, it is not the fault of the person who took it. It's yours. Why didn't you watch it? What were you doing? <laughs> right? <laughs> These are the things that are coming. Rightfully so. That was your job. Your job was to watch the purse. You didn't watch the purse. Somebody else watched it and took off with it. But that tells you that thing has, has value. There's a lot of times that we've carried things that had value. We didn't know they had value. And someone was able to take that out. And we didn't know it. But God has, God has given us things that have value. But someone has made you unaware of the value that it has. Once we have something the enemy fears or knows is valuable, we become a target. Regardless of how conscious you are of its value. It does not matter if you know that it's valuable. If the enemy knows it has value and it is a danger to him, you become a target. It's not good to be a target. You ever, uh, I know there's a movie out about dodgeball. I did not go and see the movie Dodgeball, but have you ever played dodgeball in, in, in high school? We played dodgeball in high school. And generally, this is how it worked when I was in high school. We had men gym teachers for the guys, and we had women gym teachers for the women. That's the way it was. They didn't, they didn't cross over unless there was an emergency. And there was an emergency on one particular day. Now, they have dodgeball for the women, and they have dodgeball for the guys. We apparently don't play the same game. We were totally unaware of the fact that we didn't play the same game until one day our gym teacher, coach, he was uh, out. I don't know if he was out for a meet, if he was out sick, whatever it was. He was not there. And so what happened was the lady gym teacher filled in his place for a dodgeball. And so they threw the balls out there. Now, they are not these wimpy balls that you find in dodgeball now. I don't know where they made these things. I don't know where they came up with. But you can get hit by a dodgeball now and lie about it. (laughs) That was not the case when we were going to school. You cannot lie when you have a broken arm. (laughs) Injuries were severe and often in dodgeball. Because we had these good, solid balls... And now I was not as good at this game, not nearly as good as as most of the guys were. They would whip these things so fast. It would hit the back wall of the gym if it missed you. Bounce off that wall and go back to them before you could ever stop it. And these balls would go whipping around. So we threw the balls out there. We played dodgeball. As we were going on through, we realized we don't have a teacher anymore. She left. Gone. Out of the room. We finished the game up. And um, you know, no one's there to call. You know, we got hit. Because you didn't have to. You're, there's a welt. There's a mark. You are down on the ground. There is blood. Something happened. I mean, it's severe. So she comes back in the room when it's all done. And she just says this. You guys don't play this the way the girls do. <laughs> And that's when we found out that it was, it's a different game. I don't know how the girls played it. We never got to go over there and see that. We just found out that that's not quite the, the way it is. 
But you see, they didn't understand how valuable it was to be a target. And everybody on the opposing team was a target. And you'd whip that ball out there. And you'd try and hit them. Everyone was. Everyone was a target. You are a target. And the enemy, whether you care about it or not, he's coming after you. He's coming after you with fiery darts. And he's going to whip them suckers at you. And it's not like you can lie about being hit. You get hit by a fiery dart, you start worrying, you start having fear. It starts coming on because your shield of faith got down. We talked about that some weeks ago. You are a target because you're on the, the king's team. But when faith gets down the inside of you, when joy, when peace, when love is down the inside, you become more of a target. When you start to spread that love, joy, peace to other people, you become even more of a target. He's got to try and stop you. So don't be surprised. That's what Paul says. Don't be surprised when we get attacked. Why are you guys surprised? It means you got something valuable. 1 Samuel 15, verse 1. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people. This is after he's had all of his troubles. We've um, you know, done things. We did the sacrifice. We weren't supposed to do the sacrifice and things like that. The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way back from when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. All right. That's the command. What is it that the enemy does? Distort. What's the next one? Distrust. Once we get to distrust, what are we doing? What was it? It's going to distract you with some stuff. What happens after distract? Distance. And then? All right. Remember that process here. Here's what God said. Verse 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel. We're jumping down here. To Samuel saying, if you want to read the whole thing, wait till you get home. Read it then. I greatly regret that I have set Saul up as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commands. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. We'll get back to that in a minute. Verse 12. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel. And indeed, he set up a monument for himself, and he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord, I have performed the command of the Lord. So he set up a monument to himself to remind everybody what he did. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Then Saul said, They have brought, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet. I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. <laughs> that's not good when the prophet tells you to be quiet. That's, uh, that's not good. But the Lord said, I want to avenge Amalek for the things that they did. So go in and destroy everything. Kings, people, everything. Wipe them all out. Nothing. So when they come back with prisoners, oxen, and sheep, what happened? 
the first thing, we had the command, we had the word that came from God, but it became, became distorted. What's the second one? They just, why does God want us to destroy these good things? We could have them. Why doesn't God, why doesn't he want us to have these things? It's not going to hurt anyone if we take these things. Hmm. What's the third one? Distraction. Remember, Achan, when I saw the silver and when I saw the nice clothing, distracted. These folks are distracted. They saw all the shiny things. Hmm. This isn't, this isn't going well. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission. The Lord sent you on a mission. You get the gravity of that? The Lord sent you on a mission. I mean, that's short. You, you cannot be any short. The Lord sent you on a mission. <laughs> it's brief a little, but it's powerful. It'll knock you over. The Lord sent, the, the Lord sent you on a mission. And you changed it. You altered that mission. Why did it become altered? Because the devil knows he's got something, but he's got an anointing. So he's a target. So get in there and take the mission and distort it. Change it. The Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until, you are con- until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. And gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. And brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I readily destroyed the Amalekites. But the people. It's the third time he's talking about the people. But the people took of the plunder. Not me. The people. You sent me on the mission, but these people. But the people took of the plunder, sheep, oxen, and the best of things which should have been utterly destroyed. (laughs) Suddenly he's remembering. Should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Then Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. So what happened? The mission became distorted. The thoughts to distract, to distrust. The eyes were distracted. The relationship grew even more distant. And Saul became rejected and displaced. 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. We're going to spend a little bit of time here on this, this one verse. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? Seeing I rejected him from reigning over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. We saw before when he got that word, he was talking to the Lord all night about this. All night about Saul. And now it's chapter 16. Apparently he spent some more time. 
talking to the Lord about Saul. So picture this. If the only interaction that Samuel has had with Saul is what we have seen in the Word of God so far, would he care this much? If all interaction between Samuel and Saul is what we have read in the Word so far, why is he so broken up about this? What's the, what's the deal? Think of it this way. When you hear a news report, somebody in another state, Texas, Louisiana, tornado comes through, and you look at all the homes and you see the people out there, you're sad, right? And then five minutes later, you're on to something else. Right? But if in the crowd of people, you see Aunt Susan and Uncle Bill, that's their house. Their house is gone. They're out there on the street. What happened? You're, you're very sad now. And you're trying to call Aunt Sue, Uncle Bill. Trying to get hold of them. If you can't get hold of them, you're trying to get somebody near them. Can you, can you get down there? You're concerned. You're concerned for the next hour. You're concerned for the next day. You're concerned for the next week. Right? But have, do you have that same concern when you see the report? For the same kind of destruction on people you don't know. You don't have the same concern, do you? I mean, you're sad. You're concerned. But not to the degree when it's someone that you know and you care about. Saul is not just some casual acquaintance of Samuel's. He must have spent some time with the guy. He must have been talking with him. He must have been instructing him. He must have been pouring into him as the first king that he would know the way of God. And he must have seen some kind of something from Saul that God saw from Saul, which is why God called him. And he saw him progress because of the first year. He was doing pretty well. He must have got tied into him because now this is the hard thing. And God has to tell him, get up. How long are you going to keep mourning for this guy? I already told you I rejected him. Now get up. Fill up that thing of oil. I got a mission for you. You better not mess it up. <laughs> he knows about messing up missions, right? <laughs> God's sending me on a mission. Look how God puts it. How long will you mourn for Saul? Seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Well, he got up. He filled his oil, his horn of oil. Verse 6, So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, he keeps doing this for all the sons. We're not going to read it all. We're going to jump on down to verse 11. But he keeps doing this for all the sons and rejecting them and rejecting them and rejecting them and rejecting them. Finally gets to the last one and God says, no, but God, you sent me to this house to anoint someone from this house, one of his sons, and here they all are. And you have rejected all of them. What's going on? So he turns to the dad. Is this all your boys? <laughs> Is this all of them? Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Did you, did you, did you forget one? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. And there he is keeping the sheep. Can you hear the contempt in Jesse's voice? 
Now, we talked about this before. Up to this point, David has killed a lion and he killed a bear defending the sheep. His dad does not believe him. That's not in the Bible. His dad does not believe him. His, because his dad doesn't believe him, neither do his brothers. And they all pick on him for these stories. They are fish stories. I, I can prove it to you, though. If you had a son who killed a lion and a bear, would you not put him at the front of the line to be king? He does not believe him. He does not even bring him along and talks about him with contempt. This is why his older brothers have contempt for him too when he comes to the battlefield. Who would you leave those few sheep with? Why are you doing hanging out over here? Just because people around you don't believe in you doesn't mean you can't succeed. There remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till, till he comes. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with bright eyes, good looking. The Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose and went to Ramah. Now you got you to gotta understand the things that are going on between David and the rest of his family. David has told him, I killed a bear today. Yeah, right. Come on. Well, come on down. I'll show it to you. Yeah, something else killed it and you're just taking credit for it. I killed a lion today. Yeah, right. Take him on down there. Show him the lion. you just taking credit for it. Something else killed the lion. You've got to stop telling these stories. We're tired of these stories. Just watch the sheep. Then the prophet calls for him. He comes on up. He gets, this is the guy. This is the guy the Lord wants. The, the Lord wants to make him king. They anoint him king and treat him the same way. They never change in the way that they treated him. They still treat him poorly. Send him back out there with the sheep. Can you imagine the contempt you would have for your son that after he killed a lion, after he killed a bear, and after the, the prophet of the nation comes to you and says, he's the one the Lord has picked. I'm going to anoint him to be king. And you still treat him with He's going to be king. That means if he wants to, he can kill you. I don't like my parents, killed them. I don't like my brothers, killed them. And they're dead. That's all he's got to do. He doesn't have to have reason. There's no courts. No judges. Just kill them. Don't get any blood on the floor. And that's all you got to do. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and the distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servant said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit of the Lord is upon you and you shall be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man who can play well and bring, me, bring him to me. Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is, a, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war. Where did that come from? Seems that there's more belief in his ability outside of his family than in. Prudent in speech and a handsome person. And the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David who was with, with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey, loaded it with bread, skin, wine, young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. So, da so David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly and became his armor bearer. Then Saul sent to Jesse saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was whenever the Spirit of God came upon Saul, David would take a harp and play it with his hand and Saul would become refreshed and well and the distressing spirit would depart from him. After this, we have the story of David and Goliath. 
Some people just debate on whether which one came first. But these two th- things happen. Can you imagine? He killed a lion. He killed a bear. He's anointed by the prophet to be king. And then the king summons for him to come and play that harp that he keeps playing out there with the sheep. How much do you think the family likes his harp playing? <laughs> Probably not a whole lot. They don't like anything that he does. And now the king has called for him to play the harp. You imagine when he goes, can't believe the king wants him to play the harp. Man, I got like three lessons. I can play it better than he can. Holy cow, you got to be kidding me. Such contempt in his family for this man. Now, we're not here to talk about David. We're here to talk about Saul. Here's the question for you. Is David sent to Saul because Saul rebelled against God? Is David sent to Saul to be Saul's replacement? Now, all the things that happened with Saul happened within a few years. It's in the second and third year he starts having trouble with the Lord. And it isn't too long. I think it's somewhere in the third year, third or fourth year, he is rejected by God. So he doesn't last more than three or four years being generous for him until he's rejected by God. How long has David been being prepared? He's been out there with the sheep. We got the story of the lion. We got the story of the bear. We got all the heart practicing that he's been doing. David has been prepared for a while. When David comes on the scene with Saul, he comes on and there's a giant and he takes care of the giant. He kills the giant and Israel goes on to a great victory. David then begins to lead them out into battle and they come up with the song, David has, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Is David helping Saul accomplish what God called him to do? He is. David is helping Saul accomplish all that God told him to do. But here's the thing. David was being prepared before Saul became rebellious. And we look at David's preparation. We think David is being prepared to be king. When in actuality, folks... David was being prepared to be Saul's helper. David was being prepared to help Saul accomplish what he was called to do. But by the time David shows up with Saul, Saul has become rebellious. And Saul is drifting from God. And he's creating more distance between him and God. And now we're going to see that Saul is going to be displaced and i put this in your outline so you make sure you get this david is an asset for saul that became an adversary to saul david is an asset for saul who became an adversary to saul saul saw him as an adversary saul became jealous after that song well, what more is there for him than the kingdom? And he eyed him from that day on. We don't have time to get into all these things. You can go read these on your own. But you're going to find out that David has a confrontation with him where he comes into the cave and he cuts off a part of his robe. And then he calls to him when he's way out yonder. And then I'm just going to sum up to you what he says. Saul, 
people have been telling you wrong things. I don't hate you. I am not your enemy. But people have been filling your head with these things. Saul was getting the wrong inputs. He had the wrong meditations. And therefore, what he did, what he gave, and what he said, all were wrong. David was an asset who became an adversary to Saul. David was not an adversary of Saul, but he was one to Saul. And Saul would repent, David, you are more righteous than I. I I shouldn't be treating you this way. I'm sorry, I'll go home. After the the last one, David turns to his men and says, he's going to come back. We need to leave. And he led, fled the country. But when he stood up in front of all those people and he said, Saul, you are pursuing the wrong one. I am not your enemy. I had the opportunity to kill you and I did not take it. I am not your enemy. All Israel was on the hill and all Israel heard. And all Israel made a judgment that day. David is not the enemy. And when Saul died in battle, who did the tribe of Judah come to to be king? Or it came right to David. David, we want you. We want you. Folks, there have been people that God has been planning to be assets in your life. But if you let your head get filled with the wrong things, these people will become adversaries to you. Don't let your head get filled with the wrong things. The Word of God says in the New Testament, believe all things, hope all things. That's how love operates. You need to operate in such a way as to not let people, to not let the enemy begin to say things about the others in your life and turn you against them. To take your David's that are assets that will help you accomplish the goals that God has given you to accomplish and turn them into adversaries to you. Don't let them do it. That's how good the enemy is. He can take something like David that God prepared to be an asset to Saul. Now just take a look at David for a minute. David lived in a house where his brothers hated him. His parents disrespected him. At least his father. We don't know about his mother. Maybe his mother was not in line with that. But this is how he, what he faced. They didn't like how he did. Didn't like his stories. And when he gets called over and the king says, Hey, I need you. And he comes in. He makes a friend in the house of Saul. Remember who that was? Jonathan. They become really good friends. And you know why? I think Jonathan is the first person in David's life who believed in him. Wow. Can you imagine David who comes into this setting being hated all this time, despised, coming into the setting and the king's son 
welcomes him in, shows him how to handle a sword, how to go beyond his sling, how to learn how to, how to do a bow and arrow. And they hit it off and they did all sorts of stuff together. They trusted each other. They came into a covenant with each other. And where did David come from? A place where people didn't like him. But the thing about David is he never picked up that attitude about people. When he gets kicked out by Saul, he finds all the people, remember all the ones we looked at before? All the ones who were in debt, in distress, disgruntled. (laughs) All the people nobody else wanted. And he picked them up and he made some fighters out of these guys because he knew the power of believing in people. He knew how good it would, how much it would change somebody's life if you could come in and believe in them because he experienced it. When he brought those people along, he said, I was where you were. My own family didn't like me. Come on in. I'm going to believe in you. You can be somebody great. Because he knew there are people out there that God has prepared to be assets to help me accomplish what I need to do. And out of the 600 men that David had, many of those filled in all the positions of leadership in his kingdom. This commander of the army came from that group. The captains, the generals, came from that group. His advisors, his priests, they all come from that group. Because he saw people as assets, not as adversaries. Until we get to the place where we see the people that God has put in our life as assets and not adversaries, we probably will not accomplish all that God wants us to. We probably will be held back. More than likely, we'll go the direction of Saul. And we'll begin to distrust all kinds of people. You know the kind of people that Saul trusted? Remember a guy by the name of Doeg who went in and slaughtered priests because they helped David? Told stories. They get people in trouble. These are the people that Saul saw as assets when they should have been seen as adversaries. It's so important that we get to the place where what is good in our life is seen as good and what is bad is seen as bad. But the enemy's purpose is to pollute the two, to corrupt it, to distort it, to get you to think that what is good is actually holding you back. And what is bad is what you need. Will you believe them? So what are the clues? How can we tell when someone is an asset or someone is an adversary. Don't you think it's important that we get to know those kind of things? Don't let the devil get you to push someone out the door. Because you may be able to get them back, but probably not to the degree that they were before. And probably not to the degree that they need to be to be that asset. Would you all stand up with me? Father, I thank you that right now you are preparing David's 
You are preparing Jonathans. You are preparing people to help us in what you have called us to do. The enemy wants us to see them as adversaries, ones that are after our position, after our calling, after something that we have. But you want us to see them as something different. Father, I thank you for the help you give us to see an asset as an asset and an adversary as an adversary. That the enemy cannot come in and taint our vision. Make it hard for us to see the truth. For we're familiar with his ways. And we won't pursue them. But we will expose them. Thank you, Father. Even though we may not see it, I thank you, Father, that you are preparing David's and Jonathan's and the days are coming where we will meet them. We'll hit it off with them. We trust that you're doing this because we saw how you did it so many times in the Word of God. We know what the enemy wants to try and do. We're aware and we're on defense. We thank you for it. every head bowed if you're here today and you say boy does that sound good to me I can use some Davids in my life raise your hand I want to trust that God is preparing people for me I understand this you also may be a David sent to someone to help them don't just sit on the sidelines don't just sit back David was always going out looking for opportunities. If it was watching the sheep, he'd watch the sheep. If it was playing the harp, he played the harp. If it was killing the bear, he killed the bear. Whenever he saw the opportunity, he took it. Look around in your life. Look around here in the church. Look around at your job. Look around your neighborhood are there people in your life who need a David can you be that David for them can you be that one that comes along encourages them and helps them put you in a much better position for your David to find you don't lose sight all that the Word of God has exhorted us to do. Don't let go of the blessings that God has put in your care. Don't count as nothing what you have. Because if you don't see it as valuable, you won't guard it. this morning you have some praise reports no praise reports oh we got some back there if you didn't get to write yours up write it out
All right, prayer request for, for Brother Jolly, right? You are going to a elderly care facility to minister. And this was an invitation by your supervisor? Yes. Oh, neat. Uh, oh, the whole family's gone? Oh, that's neat. All right. Uh, the other one is for, for Sydney. It's Alexis' best, best friend. Her father is in the hospital for congestive heart failure and kidney failure, both. Wow. Uh, ICU, regular part of the hospital? Okay. It would sound like an ICU kind of a thing to me. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a lot of things to have going on. All right. It's, that's, uh, if you're not standing, come on, stand up. Let's pray over these folks. The folks that are around the Ekpe family, stretch out your hand, lay your hands on them. Well, Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to minister the Word of God, minister to, to these folks. I just thank you for the anointing that is on each member of this family, Father, as they go and minister, opportunities to lay hands, opportunities to speak your Word, opportunities that you give, Father. They will seize, they will see them, and I thank you for the open doors that are there. Glory be to God. And Father, we pray for Sydney. I didn't ask this. Is, is, uh, is he born again? Believe in God for his healing? All right. Well, Father, then we just agree with our, our faith with His that healing is, belongs to Him. And Father, You heal the heart, heal the kidneys. There is no part of this body that You cannot heal, and we thank You for it. So in the name of Jesus, we speak life to that body. We speak life to that kidney. We speak life to that heart. In Jesus' name, life flows in. We thank You for it. We give you the glory and the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.